Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited back a cellist, Byron Duckwall, who will be performing very soon at Carnegie Hall, actually, on September 26th with one of our other favorite musicians here, Katya Grinieva, who has been a guest on the show a number of times, uh, both TV and radio, and Byron was also a guest on A Better World TV going back, my word, maybe around 18 years ago. But we want to have him back again because much has happened over these years. Everyone has developed and matured and ripened in their own respects, and it's uh, really very much timely to have Byron back with us today. A little bit about his background. Byron Duckwell began studying cello with his father at age seven. He studied with a long list of many great teachers, starting at this tender age. At 17, he won the Greater Chicago Youth Orchestra Competition and soloed in Orchestra Hall. Soon after, he won a full scholarship to the New England Conservatory, performing the Vivaldi Double Concerto. Critics praised Byron's playing, saying his, quote, timing and resonance were exceptional, even at that tender age, end quote. At age 20, Byron became faculty cellist for the Center for New Music, a Rockefeller Foundation group. He attended both Yale Graduate School of Music and San Francisco State University and has received both a BA and a master's degree in music. Currently, Byron is concertizing in the United States and abroad. Most recently, he launched the MTC Master the Cello website, revealing the secrets of D.C. Dunas, who will be going into some depth about his teaching method in today's show. He recently compiled and co-edited the most definitive work on the Dunas method. Byron, as I said, was a guest some years back, so it's with great pleasure that we have Byron on with us again today. So welcome back to A Better World, Byron. It's been a while. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Good. So, you know, the cello is such a beautiful instrument, and I've had the great joy, even somewhat recently, Byron, of hearing you perform at Carnegie Hall with Katya. And um, it's just, well, how do I say? Um, an old cliche, it's music to my ears. It really is. And So just tell us a little bit about your own sense of inspiration from playing. I mean, sometimes children are taught an instrument at an early age, and they take to it like a duck to water, no pun intended there, and others uh, say, you know what, I'd really rather be playing either another instrument, or I'd rather be playing tennis or baseball, and they go their merry way over time. But for you, you stuck with what it is that you were introduced to, so will you just talk about that process inwardly for you back at that age? And then we'll update. Well, well, when I was a child, you see, my father was a conductor, but his great passion was the cello. And uh, although my father could play pretty much every instrument in the orchestra, and it was very impressive, he could uh, he could pick up a bassoon, an oboe, a French horn, uh, a bass, violin, cello, viola, and, that is and you know awesome. basically every instrument and play it. But he loved the cello. 
So when he gave me the full freedom to explore and try any instrument I wanted, but I just was naturally attracted to the cello, and and I then I I just fell in love with it. It was like, it's a, I just think it's such a beautiful sound, you know, it's such yes. an attractive, sensuous kind of sound. You know? Yes, it really is. It really is. It kind of is in the middle of a violin and a bass, and it kind of hits that sweet spot in the middle, you know? Is that kind of really? what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. it's a, yeah. Violin is, uh, you know, the higher texture is more like a soprano or something, whereas the cello is more like, you know, it's like he's, it's like the Pavarotti of instruments, you know? Right. It's, it's a tenor voice. Or mezzo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right, right, or right. Some, but it's, it's got that, it's got a huge range to cello. So even though you play, you know, in that sort of tenor range, you also can play extremely high and it can be very virtuosic. And yet you get these low, deep tones. Like in the cello suites, I've heard violinists try to play the Bach cello suite and they just never, it never sounds right because it doesn't have the depth, you know? Interesting. Um, so, yeah. So interesting. And the versatility, as you're really saying, I'm honestly I'm remembering a, a lovely woman uh who's since become a very good friend, Mina Cho, who is uh a Korean American who played cello. She was a an intern here, Byron, for a number of years at a better world and she played classical cello, but also played with Kanye West. <laughs> Talk about versatility. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. It, it really—it's it, that kind of thing, right? It, it has that kind of wide spectrum, if you know, in the right certain hands, I should say. Right. No, the lot's been done with it, and I think there's a big following for cello. I think there's a lot of people that, for some reason, just love the cello. Right? I, I, I keep running into them. You know, they just—they come out of the woodwork, kind of thing. You know. You, you know how many people love the piano and how many people just love singing opera and all this sort of thing. But there's a sure. big following for cello as well. God, yeah. And your life is testament to it because while you also do a lot of concertizing, you also do a lot of teaching. And uh, in fact, I would really love to bring up something that we discussed briefly uh, prior to the show, which is the Dunas method, which is something mm-hmm. that you have shared. And as I mentioned, you helped to compile, uh, you know, a definitive work on this method that has been very, very important to you. Uh, can you tell us what it is and how it's affected well, you? Yeah, well, first of all, it's not very well known. It's not in the orthodoxy of string playing, which is unusual considering the Dunas, who did most of his teaching in New York, although he did master classes in Europe and in, on the West Coast in San Francisco. Dunas um, in, was in the 30s and 40s, taught in New York, and almost in secret taught all the, probably all the greatest uh, violinists of, of, of that time. I mean, I would say almost every concertmaster studied with him, many in secret. They didn't want to know that they were going and taking lessons but uh, one very famous string player, William Why Pino, is that, though? Why was it so secret? Well, you know, it's just ego, I think. I mean, people just, they don't want people to think that they're not already great. These are, you're talking about really top players. 
And, okay. like, and I'll give you an example. Was William Primrose was like the greatest violist to ever live, kind of thing. Played with Heifetz. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, mm-hmm. he went, and he had a couple of issues, and he went to Dunas, and Dunas solved them for him, and he said, my God, this guy's a genius. I can't, I've, oh. I've never met anybody like this. And that's how my teacher, who, I, who was Dunas's number one principal student, George Nykrug, met him because his, he had a friend back in the 30s. He had a friend in New York. He grew up in New York, and his friend was a violist. And he, and he said that he, he had studied with Primrose, and Primrose had been raving about this guy Dunas. And so, so George, who had been studying with Emmanuel Foreman, uh, probably the greatest cellist ever lived, and he said, um, you know, Foreman's such a great player, but he's not, he's not a te- not a teacher. He can't explain to me how he plays, you know, how he does it. And this guy says, well, maybe you should check out this this Demetrius Dunas guy. And he heard about it. And he went. He met Dunas. And when George describes it to me, this event that happened, you know, like. 70 years ago or whenever and he said that he said it was like he, he he was like a pot of gold like he said it was like he knew that this guy was extraordinary genius and could solve mm-hmm. all of his problems and so then he <laughs> sent the, and his he musical sent, problems we should say <laughs> yeah what all his musical problems yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And he was there even at his deathbed, and Ed Dunas was even teaching him on his deathbed. And, uh, oh, my. It, it, so what's interesting about it is that... It's a mythic story. Um, yeah, but see, like, Dunas doesn't teach like anybody. I, I've, I went to all these teachers, I, what we would call the most famous teachers of my time. I, I studied mm-hmm. most every famous teacher of the time. And some from, you know, four or five years, some for, you know, six months or whatever. But I had a lot of teachers. Not all of them are on my resume, but you can see how many there are. And when yeah. I went to George and he started showing me all these things that Dunas, which were incredibly effective. I mean, the most effective things that I've ever been shown how to, about how to play. I would say we and went for like a year and a half, a couple of years, and I realized that Everything he had said to me, I'd never heard before from anybody. Oh, it was like word. the first. And time you went I to the New England Conservatory. You've right. gone to Yale. You've gone and, to the top this, schools. Nothing was presented to me. None of this. And mm. so I realized this is like, this is the most amazing teaching that's ever been. And there's a kind of secret. Um, Dunas had this like incredible following. But it was very like his reputation spread because he was such a genius. But but yes. it was never he wasn't a self promoter, so he never became like you know Hour or or Flash or any of those people that developed this huge class of students. And the students themselves mm-hmm. were all like prodigies, so they would the teacher would get a reputation of being a great teacher from the talent of the students. Not through the actual methods, not through the yes. the genius of what he was doing. You see, Dunas could. But what take, would you describe? Uh, how, how would how, you describe uh, what Dunas's method was? What get you? You've oh, you've tantalized us with his well, okay. brilliance. It's but very, 
what? Give us a taste of it. Okay. It's based on re-employing or reawakening or reusing or bringing into play your native instincts. And what I mean by native instincts is all the things that you can do naturally that you don't have to be taught. For example, picking up an object, picking up your cell phone, standing up, scratching your head, you know, mm-hmm. uh, caressing a baby, caressing, uh, petting a cat, you know, and any mm-hmm. of these normal things that we all learn before we even have any kind of mind, before the age of one, nobody remembers even learning these things, uh-huh. standing up, walking, and taking those things and reawakening them in exactly the circumstances that you use in playing. So, mm-hmm. say for example, I'll give you a simple example would be, Tuna said that one of the key things to in playing is that is how you touch the string, how you approach the string. He says mm-hmm. if you if you would simply touch a smooth surface like um, like a granite uh, t- um, countertop, and you just watch what your hand does, you'll see that right before the hand touches the top to to just feel how smooth it is, the fingers splay out just moments before they touch. And, and it has this whole thing that the hand does naturally that everybody mm-hmm. can do. Everybody knows how to do it. It's completely instinctual. You don't have to learn it. You just have to employ it. So the, the yes. kinds of things that Dunas would do is he would have you touch, like he would have you t- hold the bow and then, and then just touch the tailpiece, which is very smooth and gives you mm-hmm. the feeling of a completely smooth surface, and then touch the instrument or even play. Uh, part of a passage on, on the tailpiece, and then play it on the on the string, and all of a sudden, everything it sounds different. It's like, mm-hmm. and, and it's on, and, and the the depth of it is was tremendous. I don't think there ever was anybody that had such an understanding of mechanics, and yet that was not the point. That was not the point. He he, that was he didn't care point, at all sure. that he knew all these mechanics. He was interested in in expression only. In the native instinct. So when we were speaking earlier and you described Dunas's method as having a spiritual quality, mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. um, is this what you're referring to, this calling Partly. upon one's Partly, deep yeah. native instinct? Yes, of course. Uh, the most important thing when you're playing, when you actually perform, you, you cannot be thinking about anything. If you start thinking about, oh, I've got this big shift coming up, or then you start getting these negative, crazy thoughts. Oh, maybe I didn't practice enough. Maybe I'm not, you know, everything that's like, all your negative self-imagery pops up, and that's what gives, a, gives you nerves and stuff. And you can't be thinking about anything. You've got to be loose. But yet you, you can't just tell the student to be loose. You see, it, there has to you, and one of the big mistakes that people make is that they they try to play like they practice, but but you have to practicing has to be the basis of your playing. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. playing has to be the basis of your, not practicing. Practicing is specialized activity that helps you improve and increase your abilities. But when you play, so let, you're not got good. No, you know, in a sense, we've got a couple of things going at the same time, a couple of parallel tracks. On one hand, there's, let's just call it the technique of knowing how to move on the instrument and knowing music, 
chords, knowing, you know, notes, knowing scales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then knowing, and then that grows into knowing pieces. Um, so there's the right. technical aspect of how to put one foot in front of the other, or in this case, you know, one finger in front of the other and one string in front of the other. And then there is the soul, you could say, the that instinctive relationship. But in in all of it, you need a quiet mind, and that's what I hear you saying. Whether that's practice or that's performance, you, in order to do the practice, so to speak, you need a quiet mind. You have to have a mind that's wholly attentive right. to the moment, not to, you know, spurious thoughts about tomorrow or yesterday. Right. Well, this points to one, a couple of things that, from what you just said. One is, of course, you have to develop tremendous concentration. And the concentration it becomes comes from various things, but, but it, it's the ability completely focused on nothing but the music. And the music, another, he used to say, Dennis used to say, the first thing you have to do when you learn a piece is you, you memorize your interpretation. He didn't say mm-hmm. you memorize the notes, the rhythms, the bowings, the fingering. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Course, but you yeah. have to actually memorize like exactly how you would sing it how you would conduct yeah. it if you were conducting an orchestra. You have to memorize that. And just so in a you, sense, you're so memorizing you know, the ab- feeling tone, ab- your interpretation, your Absolutely. Style. Yeah. Beautiful. Everything. That's exactly it. And then you start practicing. You see? Yeah. Because he says you save like, it's like three or four times faster to learn a piece. Yeah. Because you're not like sort of mechanically working things out, and then you go back and add the music. Well, then you're having to relearn everything. <laughs> right. yeah. So that's one thing. The other no, thing I get is, it. That's a very interesting, sure, that's a very interesting point. Yeah, yeah, and, a development. And there's also this, the fact that expression is the key and most important thing in music. So yes. uh, how, do, how that occurs, you see, with a person, like a lot of people have a lot of talent, but because of various flaws in their mechanics and their approach to it, it becomes locked up, and this is what Dunas could do. He could unlock all that, and all of a sudden, somebody you thought was just an average talent, all of a sudden seems absolutely brilliant, and you think they're, you think they're a prodigy, and yet it was always there. It needed to be unlocked. So then you, it yeah. points to the fact that you have to realize that when you perform, it's a combination of an artistic event and an athletic event. They're combined <laughs> together. And you mm-hmm. have to have a conduit between your voice away for the voice to go into the instrument. And that mm-hmm. is via the hands. The hands are extremely expressive. They're the, they're, they're the sense of touch, being, you know, having been moved, being, feeling something, uh, expressing yes. feeling to others is done through the hands. Like a conductor conducts and wordlessly gives his interpretation to the orchestra, you have to do the same with an instrument. So if a person has an, has an impulse in their arm or shoulder or in some place displaced from just going from the voice into the hands, then automatically your expression is much less. So it's almost like yes. this kind of yoga that the, mm-hmm. the channel has to be completely opened with no knots 
and no trepidations and no fears. Yeah, no blocks. And then no all obstacles. of a sudden, it's just yeah. right. And and it's like a miracle. And what's interesting about it is when you reestablish these principles in a person, it 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 instantly changes their plan. It's not like a like you have to wait. Now you might they might have to keep doing it to make it their own and get it so it's solidly in their system in all circumstances. But the actual mm-hmm. moment that you put it in place, instantly they're on that high level. It's just it's instant. It's the free it's very, flow very of chi through the system, right. through the mind and body. Absolutely. I'd like to pick and up. Thank you very much for that. Sure. I want to ask another question that's related to this, uh, but distinct. And that is earlier you said you made reference to what who you called the finest cellist of all time. And oh, okay. I began thinking, I don't remember or know the name, but I was thinking about Pablo Casals. I was thinking about others who have come down the pike who have also been considered great masters. And so let's say, it's interesting, all their technique is superb. It's highly competent. So it seems to me, and this is what I would like to hear you comment on, Byron, what is the distinction of their style? Let's say, you know, Allah Dunas is saying, you must memorize your interpretation. Is that subjective interpretation? Because it's not, it's interpreting the notes in a certain flavor and tone. Is it our ex- subjective experience of the difference between, let's say in this case, the different cellists? and the way they interpret it, that we say that's the greatest or the other fellow or woman is the greatest? Well, I, I think that, you know, Chris, there's a level of just your opinion about things, but I think there's also a commonality that uh, most people would agree that certain players are truly great. And even if you might not like a player, you can recognize that he's great at it. And you might but what is it that creates like that to... distinction? That's what I'm, I'm kind of trying to well, you know, characterize and define what we call, at that level, greatness. Well, this is, this is, this is really a great question. I really appreciate this question. Because it's, it's really sure. a lot of depth in this question. And here's how I would answer it. What's interesting is when you actually bring these instincts to, let's say, even not 100%, but let's say you start employing your native instincts in your playing to the degree of 70% or 75%. At that point, you start seeing qualities in the playing, in the expression, subtle qualities, things that people might strive for for their whole life and never acquire Mm. uh, lesser players. But because these people somehow have tapped into these natural things just because of their, their, their you know, natural talent, these subtle qualities appear. But anybody who's introduced to those and awakens those, they also reappear. I'll give an example. My teacher had this student at uh, Boston University, and she uh, failed, uh, took four attempts, four auditions on four consecutive years one audition per year before they accepted her into Boston College because they just felt she was an average player. 
but she kept mm-hmm. studying with my teacher, and her great quality was her. Is this her, George? Um, you know, Nyquist. George. Yes. Yes. And he's, as, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest living teacher until he dies, but he's almost a mm-hmm. hundred now. But he, oh. this girl, she said her great quality was. She could follow instructions and would diligently always do without any drama, um, you know, make the corrections she needed to make. And she just kept doing them and just yes. was very uh, persistent and dedicated. Mm-hmm. And at the end of these four years, she got accepted. She went to school, studied with him. She came out. She took her first audition. You know, auditions are crazy hard. There's like hundreds yeah. of cellists. They're all good. And she goes to her first orchestral audition and wins. And and I heard her play. Because a couple of times I went in and my lesson was after her lesson. And she was one time I heard her play Shostakovich concerto for him. And I went, my God, who is this? This girl's amazing. Mm. <laughs> it was like everything uh-huh. was like perfect. You know, I was sitting there uh-huh. like that. And he started laughing. He said, this girl had so many problems. But we just went through and we reestablished everything, and she just listened and corrected everything, and then all of her instincts started coming into all the playing. And she played that audition, and the conductor said to her, well, of course, she's a prodigy. And she called yeah. up George and told him that, and they just started laughing. She looked and is actually a prodigy now, but she wasn't, you see? Yes. And this yes. is a yes. great hope, a great hope. And when you talk about these great That's players, right. if you look at their playing, you'll see to some significant degree, they're doing these natural things. To yes. the degree they're not, it's a limitation in their playing. Yes. But that's how you get these great qualities. Thank you for that answer. Yeah. Sure. And But you said it, it, it really um, provides great hope because what it means is that when people are attuned to their own inner self, if you will, while it will always sound different because everyone is bio-psycho-individual, uh, right. it's going to come out their way. It's like every being has his own notes and tone, and then that gets expressed through the hands, through the instrument, as you were describing um, before. Perfect. And it's it will sound way their way. Okay. It will be their That's voice, right. if, as you it's were talking great. That yeah. was perfectly. Yeah. So that was exactly right. And of course, this Thank is you. actually something that gives you you gives you you have a place to hang your hat. You can actually yes. I mean, this is a very practical thing, you see. And it's and so when I sure. look, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a curse because when when I look at somebody play now, because I spent twenty five years being schooled in this and, and and learning and mastering all this, a lot of this stuff, and yeah. I I look at somebody play. I can, I know, I know what's going on, even in, in oh, just a few min- seconds or a minute or two. Sure. Watching them, I can, sure. I can see what it is. And, uh, yes. Yes. And it, it, it really yes. is. And my teacher used to do that. And I thought, how does he, how does he do that? How does he, how does he know? Like, and now know? I understand right. how he knows. You do. You know, he do. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you do. It's so exciting because it's it's like so hopeful, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it gives you so much. It means uh, everybody, confidence. with the right coaching, it suggests Byron that anyone 
can, who might be considered like that girl, you know, an average player, can actually reach the height of their human potential when they're following their own inner voice and instincts. And that's a that's, very that's encouraging kind of statement. That's right. You do you do need a master teacher, though. I mean, you need someone who can actually show you exactly how it works and what the flaws are that are currently occurring and how to how to yes. counteract them or uh, or reestablish them so they're natural again. That all that's a whole process that, that takes some time, but uh, amazingly quick though when you consider what you're trying to deal with. You know. Well, and, you know. Exactly. It, it it very much is a, a spiritual practice. I mean, I <laughs> have taught writing as a spiritual discipline and even listening as a spiritual discipline because what it requires a person to do internally is turn off, you know, what we commonly refer to as the monkey mind and come mm-hmm. into a deeper inner place which is a form of resonance, by the way, as you well know, internally and externally. So there's really no distinction. There's one big chord or one big note being played. And I want to just go back for a moment in our last minutes here uh, to when you and I first met. It was through uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Richard Hart, so, gosh, 20 years ago, when he got involved with the spiritual practice offered by Adi Da. And that's right. really the context through wow. which I met you. Is he still he, an active voice so and teacher for you? Oh, my God. Adi Da is like, uh, well, that's all. We have to go on another show to talk about that. <laughs> but, but Adi Da, of course, any, any truly great master, I mean, there's so many charlatans and frauds and or people just of lesser... But when someone is a genuine master, it's it's uh, it's so extraordinary. It, it's it's really hard to describe to somebody. It's just so um, it's so profound. Even just gazing into the eyes of a person like that, it's like they're looking at you from another planet, a place mm-hmm. much more peaceful and 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 intelligent and full of beauty and and ecstasy and and it and it's just, and and the fact that that a person can actually transmit that and yes. and and imbue another human being with that and it's of course, yes. of course an amazing and probably the most interesting process that exists among humans you know to be able to yes, go through that transformation is. So I guess the answer, you sounded raptured, so I'm assuming you are still deeply, he's deeply influencing your life to this day. Well, yeah, I mean, so when you think about music and how how amazing music is, I mean, music is a a doorway and, like you say, it's sort of a doorway into the higher uh, consciousness. Yeah, higher realm. or Or this great beauty. Uh, any great artist, exactly. Monet or anybody, will draw you into this place that is beyond yeah. e- even being human. It's, it's into That's a place right. of like perfect feeling, unlimited feeling. That's right. And Adi Shah, so when I think about him, it's like it isn't like uh, separate from music or anything. It's like everything's in there. Like so, it, yes, no matter exactly. what I would feel, it would, he would be it would be part of what I felt with him. You see, 
I don't have to make yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like thank you, you for bringing us than, into that. You can't get bigger than light. You know, how big is light? You know, it has no size. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like it's try to measure you know? the in, try to measure infinity, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. That's, well, that's beautifully put. That's beautifully and put. And of course, when Byron, I play the cello, I always play for him. You know. Yeah, I see. Right. He's always being honored through your playing. That's that's so beautiful. Well, talking about your playing, you and Katya will be playing very soon, and I met Katya through my friends in the Adida world as well, and we've remained friends all these years. Uh, tell us about the concert coming up. When is it? Where is it? And how do people uh, tune in and get tickets? Well, you can you can get tickets at uh at Carnegie Hall uh, dot org, uh, and that's uh, it's on the 26th at 8 p.m. in uh, in the Carnegie Recital Hall, which is extraordinarily beautiful, as you know, with the, you yes, know, the three multi-million dollar chandeliers and the perfect acoustics, and it's what I like about it is it's it's so intimate this hall, um, yes. and you know it's 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 just. If no one's, if someone hasn't been there, they should go just to experience a beautiful concert in this place. Mm, it's so yeah. intimate and beautiful, and we're playing yeah. all these beautiful romantic pieces. We're doing Rachmaninoff. We're playing the entire Brahms E minor sonata, which is really fun for me because this is the first time Katya and I have played for, together for years. But this is the first time we played Brahms. And we're having uh-huh. so much fun playing. And and this piece by Brahms is so interesting because it was he wrote it when he was twenty nine, it was eighteen sixty two, and it's like marks the pivotal point in his writing where he it's like he became Brahms. Before it was like mm. more impetuous and wild and then he wrote this piece and everything after was all the great works of Brahms. And so and wow. it has all those great qualities. It's just like Everything coalesced or something when he wrote this piece. His opus thirty. I wonder if he was studying with Dunas. I'm kidding you. It sounds like he came into his own through his own instincts. <laughs> right. right. He got in it's touch. It's inspired by Bach. You know the the theme yes. and the the theme is very similar to the uh, Art of Fugue theme and the thirteenth. What do they call the contrapuntus? Um, the thirteenth variation in the Art of Fugue is the is exactly a quote from the last movement of the Brahms. Which which he does as a fugue, so it's and it's ex- extremely challenging music, but incredibly gorgeous music. I can't. I, I just it, when we rehearse it, we both we get up and it's and of course we're doing Rachmaninoff vocalist and she's playing three of um uh three of the most beautiful nocturnes, uh, which are the most uh, popular pieces that um that uh, Chopin wrote during uh, during his lifetime. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we're also doing, you know, like the Swan and, and Meditation from Thais and just beautiful. She's playing, the, and I don't know if you know this piece, a piece by Tchaikovsky called Autumn Song, solo piano piece that is absolutely gorgeous. And, oh, fantastic. I mean, these are like little treasures, you know? Well, we're going to wind up our show with... Uh one of the pieces that you recently sent me, Thais, the meditation, that cool. uh, so people can get a little bit of a taste of what is coming. 
So cool. Byron, it's been a complete pleasure to have you on and going into such depth about your experience and your love of music and cello and your teacher and all your teachers. And uh, it's just delightful to hear someone so deep in the space and the beauty of music. I want to thank you for your dedication and uh, bring uh, forward so much fun, beauty to the Mitchell, world. Mitchell, super fun. Oh, so glad. I'd love to do it again sometime. <laughs> Sounds great, of course. Okay, thanks again. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. You're so welcome. Yes, definitely. Bye-bye now. Byron Duckwall, cellist at large, as I was describing before. You can have a, a spiritual experience just by listening to him speak about his enraptured experience of playing and of his teachers. And uh, it's so obvious and so beautiful that people can, in this utterly wild and uh, zany world, be so focused so pristinely concentrated on the quality and tonality of music and the subtleties and nuances that Byron was just sharing with us. I so appreciate it. So in closing, my friends, I want to just thank you all for listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. As you know, we are a 501c3 for those of you in other countries, that means a non-profit organization. And we're very glad to have people from India and, and Taiwan these days and Australia, South Africa, UK, Canada, Mexico, listening to us. And uh, spread the word. Let people know that uh, we are here and we are here to serve. So thanks again for joining. If you're able to make donations and also just for your own uh, comments and suggestions, I love when you get back to me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Here's what Byron sent me, a taste of this upcoming concert. Carnegie Hall, September 26th.